Good evening and welcome. Tonight is Thursday night, October 6, 2022, and tonight is devoted to trying to appreciate the complex beauty of Sukkos, the holiday which will start this Sunday night. The first two parts that I'd like to share with you are based on an article that was written by Dr. Arthur Schaefer, who is a professor of plant biology. So if you look at the holidays that we have, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkos, the three festivals, the rituals that go along with them are usually presented with their symbolic meaning. For example, the Torah tells us about matzah on Pesach. The Torah says, Shivas yomim tochel of matzah's lechamoni. Seven days we eat matzah, the bread of poor people, or the bread of affliction. Ki b'chipazon yotzasa me'eretz mitzrayim. Because you left the land of Egypt in haste. And so we eat matzah in order that we will remember the exodus from Egypt our entire lives. So we have a mitzvah of matzah, and the Torah tells us why we have that mitzvah. Concerning the holiday of Sukkos, we have a mitzvah to sit in a sukkah, the temporary structure that we refer to as a sukkah. And there too, the Torah tells us why. The Torah says, We sit in a sukkah, we dwell, we live in a sukkah for seven days of the holiday. In order for you to know in every generation, that God provided these temporary structures, sukkos, for the Jewish people to live in during the traveling through the desert. Very curious, though, that the other mitzvah of Sukkos, the Arba Minim, the four species, we take a Lulav, an Esrog, Hadas, and a Rava, these four species, we hold them together, we make a Bracha, we wave them in each direction, we walk all around the Shul with them. Nowhere does the Torah give us any indication of why we perform this mitzvah. It's very strange. The Torah simply says, you shall take for yourself the fruit of a beautiful tree and the plant that grows along the river, etc., the four species. You should take them. But the Torah doesn't say anything. And here we are, Jews, every year. We're observing this mitzvah carefully. We're picking out beautiful sets of lulav and esrog. And um, we are not given in the Torah any explanation of why we do this mitzvah. So, since the Torah does not tell us, it is up to us to fill in the gap. And if we look at the commentary of our sages, we find numerous different explanations of why we take the Arba Minim, the four species. The reason that is perhaps best known is that these four plants represent by their shape the key parts of the human body. Our rabbis in the Medrash tell us that the lulav represents and symbolizes and, and visually appears like the spine of a person. And the hadas, the myrtle, 
has the, the leaf has the shape of an eye, the human eye. The willow has the shape, the leaves have the shape of our mouth. And the esrog resembles our heart. And the idea is that we take all of the different limbs of our body symbolized by these different plants and we bring them together to praise God, which recalls the famous verse in Tehillim in Psalms, Kal Hanashama Tahalalka, my entire body praises God. So I use these different items that represent and look like different parts of the body to praise God. Okay. Another well-known interpretation is that these four species symbolize or parallel four different groups of Jewish people with the idea being that we are supposed to bring them together and to represent unity amidst our diversity. The esrog has a beautiful fragrance as well as a delicious taste. You can eat the fruit and that represents those individuals that have learning Torah and performance of good deeds. It's as if there's good taste and beautiful smell. And then there's another one that has one but not the other. And then the one that has neither. And all four groups, wherever we are, we join them together so that all Jews come together. We take these four items and we hold them together. This idea of being able to serve God and to praise God with a sense of unity amidst the fact that all of us are different. The common denominator of these opinions, these approaches, is that these views were developed by scholars who lived outside of Israel and who had no direct knowledge of the botany of Israel and the surrounding region. So allow me to share two approaches that come from people who do know the botany, who do know the plants and vegetation of Israel and the surrounding area. The first approach I want to share with you comes from Noga Haruveni, who is the founder of Israel's botanical garden, Naot Kedumim. And he suggests, and he actually bases this on the writing of the Rambam Maimonides, he suggests that the four species that we take are our attempt to reenact our travel from Egypt through the desert into the land of Israel. So, we take a lulav. A lulav is the branch of a date palm tree. The date palm grows in the desert, only in the desert, in an oasis in the desert. And it represents our traveling through the desert on our way to Israel. The willow, the arava, is a plant that grew along the Jordan River. And so 
And that was the entry point of the Jewish people. At the end of 40 years, Yehoshua, after Moshe died, Yehoshua led the Jewish people into Israel, crossing the Jordan River from east to west. And the willow is a plant that grew along that river. As soon as the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, they first encountered forest covering hills. And that is symbolized by the hadassim, the natural habitat of the myrtle branch, is in hills, in hilly areas. And then, after the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, they started to clear the forest area the thicket area, and to cultivate and plant that with the most beautiful and choice fruit trees. And we know that the esrog, the citron, is one of the earliest fruit trees grown in Israel. And therefore, according to this, this mitzvah of the four species, the Arba Minim, Lulav, Esrog, Hadas, and Arava, according to Haru Uveni, is to teach us that, quote, you led us through the wilderness in the days of the exodus from Egypt and sheltered us in booths in the shade of the date palms in the desert. You set us under willows of the Jordan. Finally, you led us, God, across the Jordan River and brought us to the land flowing with milk and honey to clear the leafy trees in its thick forest land in order to turn that land into fruit-bearing groves. So these four species allow us to reenact our path from Egypt into Israel. I would add to this, there are two behaviors that we have with these four species on the days of Sukkos. One is the na'anuim, the waving. We during the Hallel, and when we recite the Bracha, we wave the Lulav and Esrog, all four, we wave them in all direction, which is reminiscent of God's promise to Yaakov, to Jacob, our patriarch, when, when God said to Yaakov, Ufaratzta, Yama v'kedma, Tzafona v'negba, you will eventually spread out and inhabit all of Israel, the north and the south and the east and the west. The other behavior that we have with the four species is the hakafos. We take them and we walk around in a circle in the synagogue. That's reminiscent of the way the Jewish people encountered the first city that they conquered, the city of Jericho, Jericho, and they conquered it walking around the city seven times. So in other words, what we do with the Lulav and Esrog on Sukkos is also part of entering and conquering the land of Israel. And if this is true, then the message of Sukkos is life should be a journey towards Israel. Traveling towards Israel is not just a one-time historical event in the past, but rather an ongoing journey. All of us always are traveling towards Israel. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once said, in former times, the captain of a ship would be guided by a star, the North Star. 
the ship will never reach that star. But nevertheless, that star remains the goal. It remains the direction. Now, many of us, fortunately, have reached Israel. Many of us have not yet reached Israel. But the four species, the Dalad Minim, are meant to remind us for all time that we are, that we should be constantly headed towards Israel. A second approach. And this approach is from Dr. Schaefer in this article that I mentioned. Water and how we receive it is very different in Israel than here, let's say, in Montreal or anywhere else. In Israel, there are dry summers and wet winters. And it's always like that. Crops depend on that. And crops depend in Israel on a proper amount of rain and rain falling at the proper time. Not too early, not too late. I remember many years ago, our family was on a trip to Israel. It was in the summer and we were in Svat having a wonderful time. It was very hot. And all of a sudden, it started to rain. Now, we were kind of excited because it cooled things off a little bit. It, was, it made it a little bit more comfortable. But everyone around us was, first of all, stunned. They'd never seen such a thing. It just doesn't rain in the summer in Israel. And also perturbed because if it would rain in the summer in Israel, it could be harmful to the crops. It's not good. It's got to rain the right amount at the right time. And this is intentional. This is part of God's plan. Listen to what the Torah says. We read this in the Torah a few weeks ago in the Parsha Vekav. Ki Moshe is speaking to the Jewish people, telling them God's message through the end of the 40 years. They're about to enter the land of Israel. And Moshe says to them, the land that God is giving you as an inheritance, lo keretz mitzrayim hi. It's not like Egypt where you came from. In Egypt, the way agriculture works is there's a Nile River and that provides irrigation all along its length. And it's steady. It is predictable. Everyone knows that they're going to have enough water as long as the Nile is there and the Nile has always been there. It's steady, it's constant. But the land that you're going to in Israel, it's not like that. It's not a flat land with one river running through it that irrigates the whole land. No. There's hills and valleys and you're going to depend on the rain. Tamid. It's 
It's a land where you're going to have to rely on the fact that God is looking out for the land of Israel to provide enough water in the right time because it's not going to be constant. You're not going to know in advance that you're always going to have enough. You're always going to have to worry about it. And it's, it's, it's very curious because for us here, North America, it's just not part of our reality to worry so much about rain. Okay, yes. <laughs> if you want to play golf, you're going to worry about whether it's going to rain. Or if you want to sit in the sukkah, you have to worry about whether it's going to rain. Or, God forbid, some type of extraordinary circumstance, a catastrophe like a hurricane. Okay, but usually most people in North America, if you're not a farmer, take the rain for granted. It's a little bit, the, the, a little bit more for the grass, a little bit less for the grass. It's hot, it's cool, but it's not part of our daily awareness. In Israel, it's not like that. In Israel, it is intrinsic to life. Not just farmers, but in Israel, everyone is aware how much rain is there this year. How full is the Kinneret, which is the Lake Kinneret, one of the main sources of water for a, a large part of Israel. But that figure of how high the Kinneret is, that's just part of general knowledge that everyone is aware of going through the winter. It's just something that no one takes for granted. Sukkos in Israel is the time of year which is the transition from summer, the dry season, to winter, the wet season. And therefore, Sukkos, the holiday of Sukkos, is the time to ask God to acknowledge that rain comes from God and therefore to ask God for sufficient rain in the right time to pray to God that it should be the kind of rain that we need, not just rain, but when and where and how we need it. Most of the customs and rituals of the holiday of Sukkos, most of the prayers relate in one way or another to water. The Dalad Minim, the four species. There's the Arava, willow. The Torah calls it Arve Nachal. The branches that grow along the river. In other words, it grows in an area that is too wet for any other species to thrive. The lulav grows in an oasis in the desert. Hadassim, myrtle, grows on the sides of mountains, alongside streams. The esrog, the citron, grows on flat land that always requires irrigation. The Torah says, the, the, the Torah says, take for yourselves pre-Eitz Hadar. So we're not exactly sure how to translate that, 
the fruit of a beautiful tree, or maybe it's the beautiful fruit of a tree. But the Talmud says something astounding. Ben Azai says, Pre-eight hadar, like a play on words, read the word hadar as if it was the word hydra. That's a Greek word. But that's a Greek word for water. Hydro-Quebec. It is, in other words, the description is the tree that grows fruit that needs the most water. Well, what tree is it that needs the most water in Israel? That's the Esrog. In other words, these four species symbolize the water that is needed in every diverse part of Israel. Water needed in the desert, water needed on the mountains, water needed in the plains, and water needed in the valleys. In other words, the Torah does give us the reason for this mitzvah. When the Torah says, Arve Nachal, the branch, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the branches that grow along the river, that's not just a description. The Torah means to tell us the reason we take it is because it grows near streams. <coughs> Sorry. We take the, the, the lulav because it grows in a desert, in an oasis in the desert. That's the reason for it. And we don't only take items that are edible because we're not celebrating the harvest. We're celebrating all of life. All of life needs water. And here's the point. This understanding of why we take Lulav and Esrog is an understanding that only came in our time from the blessing of the return to Israel. When we could finally, once after 2,000 years, be living in Israel and see these species live with these species the way they grow in Israel. And it gives us a completely new insight into the reason for this mitzvah. So what should we be thinking about when we hold the Dalad Minim, the four species on Sukkot? I've quoted to you before in a different context the words of the Mishnah Bura, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin, who talks about prayer. When we stand to pray, we stand facing towards Jerusalem. Why? A person should think in their heart and in their mind, meaning in their imagination. I have to visualize myself standing in the Beis Amikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Chavetz Chaim writes further, We should intend, direct our thoughts towards Jerusalem. And in this way, we join together our essence with every other Jewish person all over the world all facing the same, towards the same direction, towards Jerusalem. 
בכל פעם שיהודי פונה לעבר ירושלים בתפילה, every time a Jew, anywhere in the world, stands facing Jerusalem in prayer, אז הוא או היא נמצאים בירושלים. At that moment, he or she is in Jerusalem, virtually in Jerusalem. היהודי אולי לא נמצא בירושלים. Maybe the Jewish person is not located inside Jerusalem. Avol Yerushalayim tamid nimtzas besocho. But Jerusalem is always inside of every one of us when we are facing toward it in prayer. And when we wave the Dalit minim in every direction and we walk in a circle with the four species, we extend beyond Jerusalem to every part of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, to the mountains, to the desert, to the plains, to the valleys. The mitzvah of the four species on Sukkos is to take a virtual tour of Israel. We should see ourselves standing in each of these places, each of these disparate locations throughout Israel, and feel God's presence and God's protection there. And the blessing of life in Israel that is made possible by that protection in our day. The Dalamin and the four species transport us through time as if we are traveling through the desert after leaving Egypt, surrounded by God's presence on our way to Israel. And the four species transport us through space as if we are walking the length and breadth of Israel today. Excuse me. Let's switch gears. Last night, the climax of Yom Kippur, the end of Neila. All of us in the synagogue, wherever we were, yelled out at the top of our lungs, Hashem Hu Elohim, God is Lord. Seven times we repeated that. And with those words, we ended that holiest of days. It was, I hope it was for you, it certainly was for me, a crescendo of emotion, of spirituality, of exhaustion, of release. And that orients the entire season, even the element of forgiveness of Yom Kippur, all of that is just a tool, a vehicle for awareness of God. Hashem Hu Elohim. God is Lord. Everything we do as Jews leads us to that. There is an irony in that phrase and in that moment. 
Because those words, Hashem Hu Alakim, God is Lord, those words are a quote from Sefer Malachim, the Book of Kings. And they come from a very famous narrative, the showdown between Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet, and the pagan priests of Baal at Har HaKarmel, Mount Carmel, just south of Haifa. So the story goes like this, that at that time, in the northern part of Israel, especially there were Jews who Nebuch had started to worship idols. And Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet, wanted to speak out forcefully to serve God and only God, and these idols are false. And so he challenged the priests of Baal to a showdown, to a public showdown. And he had them offer their offering to their God, and they cried and they prayed, and nothing happened. And then Elio Navi set up an altar with a carbon, a sacrifice, and he prayed to God. And there was this miracle that a ball of fire came down and consumed the offering exactly as Elio had said. And it was a clear miracle that demonstrated that the f- idols are false and the pagans are wrong. And there is only one God and Eliyahu was the correct prophet of that God open, clear miracle. Everyone saw it with their eyes and when they saw that miracle, they said, Hashem hu alakim. We see it with our own eyes. It could not be more clear. And so we borrow that at that moment when for us, it could not be more clear. Hashem hu alakim after everything that we've been through. Rosh Hashanah and the 10 days of repentance, and Kol Nidre, and Yom Kippur, and Ne'ilah, and that's it, that's what we reach, the same level of certainty, and sureness, and openness, it's like we see it with our eyes. Hashem Bulokim. But then the prophet goes on to describe, just a very short time later, that the people started to revert to idolatry. How is that possible? How is that possible that there can be this open, clear, unbelievable, gigantic miracle? Everyone sees it. You can't doubt it. You can't have any uncertainty about it. And you acknowledged it. You said, Hashem will akim. So how could it be a few days later? You're back to serving idols? Nechama Leibowitz points out a very, very important truth. Dramatic, spectacular events don't change people's lives. You may think they would, but they don't. And there are so many examples of this in everyday life, in every area of life. Just to mention one that comes to mind. Do you remember a few years ago, right here in Montreal, there was a rally to warn about climate change? Do you remember it was the largest rally in the history of Montreal? Do you remember the worldwide coverage, the celebrities, how much publicity it received Do you remember the pledges and the promises that were made? 
how much of that has come true? How many of those pledges have been kept? Large, dramatic events won't change anything until it is synthesized and institutionalized into daily life. It's not dramatic. It's not newsworthy. But that is the only sphere of real, lasting change. Normal life. Routine life. That's the only path. Rabbi J.J. Schachter points out that if you look at the three festivals, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkos, Sukkos is different than the other two. Pesach, Passover, this powerful miracles, the, the plague against the firstborn, the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the Red Sea, I think they made a movie about it. Wow, spectacular, amazing, unbelievable, open, clear miracles. Shavuos commemorates God speaking at Mount Sinai in front of the entire Jewish people. There was thunder, there was lightning. I think they made a movie about that one also. And then there's Sukkot. What does Sukkot commemorate? Kiba Sukkot, or Shavti, is B'nai Israel. We lived in a Sukkot. This is how we lived during the 40 years. Not so dramatic. It's not so momentous. What exactly are we celebrating? What exactly are we commemorating? That this is how we lived while we were traveling through the desert. I want to share with you something that is so remarkable. <clears throat> rabbi Avram Cook, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, before he was the chief rabbi, his first position in Israel, he was a rabbi in Yafo. He arrived in Israel in 1904. So he was living in Yafo, which is just south of Tel Aviv. And his son was studying in a yeshiva in Yerushalayim. In that time, it was a few hours' journey from one to the other. Okay. We have a letter that Rav Cook wrote to his son. It's just... Here's what he writes. He writes to his son, remember, he's in Yafo, his son is in Yerushalayim. Ksov na lanu, please, write us a letter, he writes to his son. Bini Yakiri, my beloved son, mikal prate hisnagoscha, we want to know everything that you're doing. Mamesh leprate pratias. I want to know every single detail of what you're doing. Ki halo sucha leshar kamagdolihi his anyanuso b'cholianecha. You have no idea. You will not be able to believe how interested I am in every moment of your daily life. Mamish shivdecha b'kumecha. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what time do you get up, and what do you eat for breakfast, and what time is lunch, and what time is dinner, and 
What time do you go to sleep? And what time do you wake up? And where is your room in the building, the dormitory? Which one is your room? Which floor? Which one in the room is your room? Vim hu rochok minachalom, your bed. How far away from the window is your bed? Shalapamim. Avir karbirushalayim. Sometimes at night it gets very cold. So I want to know. I just want to make sure your bed is not too close to the window. Please write me and tell me. Where is your bed in the room? How far away from the window it is? incredible. But this is true love. Not the great big events that are happening, but the every day. I want to know every detail of what your life is because I care about it, because I'm thinking of you. This is an expression of love that goes so far beyond any kind of grand gesture or great holiday or ostentatious display. That's what Sukkos is. It is precisely the ordinary, the mundane awareness of closeness with God. We live with God surrounding us. That's what it means. It's not making the news. It's not spectacular. But it is the essence of the love between ourselves and God. I've shared this with you before, and it needs to be repeated. Our sages ask, what is klal gadol batora? What is the single unifying, underlying principle of the entire Torah, the most important principle that everything else in the Torah is based on. We know the famous answer of Rabbi Kiva, love your fellow as you love yourself. Great answer. There's another answer given. Every human being is created in God's image. Wow, that's amazing. That's radical. That's revolutionary. Every single human being is, is, is deserving of, of rights and dignity and is beloved by God. Amazing. Wow, everything is built on that. But there's a third answer. Every single morning, you offer an offering to God in the morning. Every single afternoon, you offer an offering to God in the afternoon. The tumid, the daily offering, every day, same thing, one day after the other. You never miss. That's the principle. That's the basis of all Judaism. That's the basis of all spirituality. Everything else rests on that. The constant, routine, daily interaction. Basukos teishfu shivas Sukkos is by far the most magnificent, the most intimate of all of the holidays because it's not grand, it's not ostentatious. There's no climax, there's nothing that you're going to make a movie about. It is celebrating being with God, dwelling with God. Everything else, 
is based on.